Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 11th of November 2020, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, and myself, Brian Gerrish. Well, I have to say, Brian, uh, the absolute slew of emails that I've had on this subject has been unprecedented, really. Uh, this is a tender. Uh, it's on the TED Tenders Electronic Daily, which is the EU website. Uh, it's been placed by the MHRA. It's called United Kingdom London Software Package and Information Systems Contract Award Notice. Uh, and uh, well, this is what it says. Um, it says the MHRA urgently seeks an artificial intelligence software tool to process the expected high volume of COVID-19 vaccine adverse drug reactions and ensure that no details from ADR's reaction text are missed. It uh, goes on further down the, uh, the tender document to say, for reasons of extreme urgency under Regulation 32 brackets 2 brackets C, related to the release of a COVID-19 vaccine, MHRA have accelerated the sourcing and implementation of a vaccine-specific AI tool. And it says strictly necessary. So this is the justification for doing it in the way that they're doing, uh, because it is strictly necessary. Uh, they're breaking the rules uh, for the EU, basically, with this tender. So they've got to justify that. They're saying it's strictly necessary. It's not possible to retrofit the MHRA's legacy systems to handle the volume of ADRs that will be generated by a COVID-19 vaccine. Therefore, if the MHRA does not implement the AI tool, it will be unable to process these ADRs effectively. So um, what's this about? Well, the MHRA, of course, is the Medicines and Health uh, Products Regulatory Authority. It is the regulator for uh, medications in the UK. Um, and uh, what they seem to be saying in this tender document is that they expect uh, a, a, a large amount, a large volume of people that have an adverse reaction to the forthcoming COVID-19 vaccines. Uh, they want to be able to track that uh, and they want to be able to um, report on it. But the question is why they would be allowing this to happen in the first place. And if we assume that uh, all the indications from the mainstream press so far uh, are that uh, the first batch of vaccines will be going to health workers first uh, and the elderly in care homes. Um, well, surely uh, we don't want adverse reactions in health workers because they, if they aren't doing their jobs, then, then we're not getting any health care. And uh, well, we've already seen from the first lockdown uh, the number of elderly that uh, died as a result of uh, withdrawal of medication. But in perhaps this time where it looks like we're going to be expecting uh, adverse reactions in, in elderly people, well, th that is very likely, is it not, to put them over the edge? I'm going to use the word absolutely, Mike. Uh -huh. It is absolutely going to do that. And um, if, if we go to the data which is readily available on vaccines and the dangers of vaccines, you're talking about people dying straight away from, from uh, a vaccine or people who have disability for life as a result of vaccine damage. And here's MHRA. This is the same organisation that banned um, uh, GCMAF as having any ability to help people with cancer. And they're saying they're not really interested in stopping the damage to people. They just want to make sure that they can collect the data. Well, I don't know that we can say that quite yet because, because we're waiting for a statement from them. So we need to see what they actually say. But these are the questions, or at least some of the questions that, uh, that I'm suggesting we ask here. First of all, why is this being advertised at an EU level? And I'm asking this question because uh, is it because uh, they don't want to advertise it in the UK? They don't want to draw attention to this? Uh, tender in the UK. I've asked, is it also being advertised in the UK? Um, asking what impact uh, it, uh, the end of the transition period will have on the contract, if any. Uh, and I'm also acting what is meant by the expected high volume of COVID vaccine adverse drug reactions. What kind of volume is the MHRA expecting? Now, uh, it's, it seems to, I'm struggling to find any other explanation than what it says on in the words. Brian, I can't really see that those words can mean anything other than they imply. An expected high volume. Um, so we know that they are expecting damage. And what are we talking about? I'm going to repeat it. We're talking about people dying directly as a result of the vaccine. Maybe they're elderly, ill and particularly vulnerable. But we know that vaccines across the board have caused a number of deaths and or long-term disability, including in very young people. But we're not worried about that as long as, we, I'm gonna say this, you're correcting me. Um, 
we're not worried about the damage, the physical damage to people. We just need to make sure that we've collected the data so that the pharmaceutical companies can benefit, presumably. I'm not saying I disagree <laughs> with you, mind you. But anyway, uh, look, uh, it gets even better because, of course, Pfizer is the company which is uh, apparently first off the blocks, out of the blocks to, uh, to uh, provide a vaccine. Um, well, everybody will be glad to know that uh, the chief executive uh, on the, the news that uh, on the same day that they announced that the vaccine was available and their stock price went through the roof, I think it went up 8% or something in a day, uh, he sold $5.6 million in stock on the same day. So this is uh, Albert Bourla. Uh, and uh, this is the, the same day, as I say, that uh, this vaccine showed what they claimed to be a 90% effectiveness and therefore the stock price went up. Now, the, the key point here is, of course, the... Uh, MHRA is going to be recording all the adverse reactions, um, but Pfizer is sitting pretty, aren't they? Because they are not going to be prosecuted in any way, should there be uh, adverse because reactions, they've because they've, they've had immunity, as have yeah. all the large pharmaceutical companies uh, in this. Um, so uh, he, on the other hand, looks like he's sort of checking out a little bit here, uh, just in case it oh. all goes pear-shipped. Oh, I speculate. I'm not any form of expert, Mike, in financial matters, but, but I believe that if you work somewhere where you have advanced knowledge of what is going to happen to affect the share price and you act on that with that foresight, that is known as insider dealing. Uh, well, for you or I, it may well be, right. uh, but for him it's not. And, oh, okay. uh, and the financial press is saying that what he has done is not illegal. Right. Um, so special rules for special people. Special rules for special people. Um, well, those um, those uh, drug companies uh, obviously rubbing their hands with glee at billions of pounds of profit as the public are vaccinated as a result of a pandemic, which I think we're very happy now to say doesn't exist. Um, but of course, what are we doing? We're, we're flooding the general public at the moment with phone calls. I received a phone call yesterday afternoon from my GP surgery inviting me to come for a flu jab. Uh, I asked the young lady if she knew the dangers. She clearly had no idea. I asked her if she knew what was in the vaccine she was offering. She had no idea. I suggested that she might do some research as to the dangers of vaccines. And she said, oh, well, don't worry because uh, Public Health England has approved it and, and it's safe. And she then added that she had had the flu jab. So I suggested that she went away and read some of the material about people who died or been seriously injured. It went very quiet on the phone, but I declined the offer. Let's come on to something more positive. And uh, the subject is Shelley Tasker, the care assistant who was brave enough to speak out. And we showed a little bit of film footage of her um, resigning uh, from the NHS in public as a result of what she discovered going on inside the NHS in respect to COVID. Uh, I had the opportunity to speak to her on a one-to-one -one basis last night. I've got some excerpts of that uh, exchange, which we'll play now, but we'll kick it off, or the video kicks off, just with a little recap of her uh, standing there to say, I resign. Listen to what she had to say. Assistant for the NHS. I don't need the uniform to prove that I work for them, but today I'm publicly resigning, okay? Can you give us those figures again now? What were the figures that you actually released? It showed that there were three patients in Trelisk Hospital that had COVID. Okay, three new patients. Um, and there was 76 deaths in total since the first lockdown. Yeah. So we worked that out to be 10 a month. Okay. Um, so that was it really. It was just, and it said something like um, 10, 10 members of staff off work with um, possible symptoms. So that the chart just confirmed how many were in there with COVID and the total deaths that they've had from COVID to date. Right. So without putting words in your mouth, what was your assessment on the situation from those figures? That, that's a very low number of people in the, in the hospitals across Cornwall with COVID. What did that mean to you? Do you know, I don't think I even really thought it through. It was just like, this is, this is wrong, 
our whole county is closing down and I know so many people that have struggled a friend's mum committed suicide not just businesses but mental health and family stuff that it's, it's just affected so many people and it's obvious that there's more deaths in Cornwall anyway um, than just due to COVID so I kind of just I just had to say it like I said I'd already leaked it a couple of days ago um, but I thought if we're doing a rally I will announce them publicly you know at the start I, I, I was leaked by someone oh we're gonna have 35,000 deaths in Cornwall alone and for the first two weeks you're going to work and it's just getting quieter and quieter and you know that the usual hustle and bustle of the hospital is a really busy place and I kept thinking this, this is the calm before the big storm it, it's gonna come and it just didn't come and then you're seeing like you're working like a 12-hour shift with no patients um the last 12-hour shift i did i think i had three patients and they were all independent so there was virtually nothing for me to do for 12 hours and that was soul destroying and i came home and i had a little rant on facebook then and i said i'm telling you all you know the hospitals are empty please stop worrying um and then of course about a week later all the shifts just started disappearing and there were none because what they'd done was a lot of the staff and i know they're desperately short-staffed always um, all of they they rely on agency staff, so they've got Kernoflex, which is run within their system. It's an NHS agency, so it goes out to Kernoflex first, then other agency staff. So it basically means you, you go online, you choose what hours you want to do, and at the moment you get all these text messages saying, "Just let us know if you can work three or four hours. We'll be happy with that because they're really short staff." But at the time, you had all these agency nurses that you know are on like treble the amount of money of our normal nurses in the hospital and you've got wards where you've got seven or eight nurses being paid a ridiculous amount of money when there's no work and we're all hanging around and then it started getting a little bit where you go and there's less and less because lots of these people come down and they live in Cornwall for a couple of months at a time they've gone back to London because there was no work and then the agency staff our worked stopped as well and they were just at you know the wards that usually are absolutely bustling bursting at the seams with not enough staff they just had half the capacity not even half the capacity of beds used and the best bit for me although um richard little john was a little bit rude at one point <laughs> he used laugh but he used the expression howling at the moon the lady who was howling at the moon um, but he backed you up by saying that what you were saying was correct and, and a lot of other people would agree with you. But he said something which I thought was fantastic. He said that if he had the choice uh, between believing Shelley Tasker, the care assistant, or Chris Whitty, uh, the <laughs> government man, he would go for the care assistant. And that must be one of the biggest compliments that one of those sorts of people could could give you. So. Um, I think it's, it's just excellent what, what you've done. Yeah. Thank you very much. It, and it really, honestly, and I hate to say it because people must think like, it, it doesn't feel like I've done anything. I've been quite overwhelmed. It's very surreal. Well, um, I keep getting all this praise and it's, it's lovely. I'm, I'm getting messages every day. Can we tell our viewers and listeners how they can share that information? Yes. Yes. Um, I, my show is called The Shelley Tasker Show and it's on Cornwall Revolution Radio blogspot.com I think that's right but if you go to my Facebook page the Shelley Tasker show well sorry we had to cut that a little bit short uh, just the editing on the video there but we will have the, the full interview which is about 30 minutes up on the web uh, on the UK column website in due course as soon as we can if you want to see more of that but what a story that lady's telling that the NHS nobody there no no panic no trouble well within a couple of days of her making her uh, public resignation this is the bbc and this is obvious bbc propaganda mike there can be no doubt so this this is the most recent wave uh, recent one the second wave of the coronavirus pandemic is putting huge pressure on the nhs and this is a complete sob story 
and that the NHS is just about at meltdown. So we're going to label that as BBC fake news. Uh, but the first one that came out uh, within about 36 hours of uh, Shelley doing what she did is this one, Coronavirus Doctor's Diary. Uh, we are first-hand witnesses of this devastation. You know what the BBC is up to here by the use of the word witness in the title and the devastation. We're going to call this uh, BBC media pandemic of fear. And clearly, um, Shelley standing up has forced a five million, virtually five billion pound media propaganda organisation to have to respond. So what is the power of ordinary people standing up to be counted? It's immense. But interestingly, in, the, in this BBC News article, uh, it ends with this man, uh, Professor John Wright, doctor, um, head of the Bradford Institute for Health Research. And he's a veteran of cholera, HIV and Ebola epidemics in sub-Saharan Africa. So I can imagine this man is closely tied in with everything going on with the World Health Organization, etc. Maybe he's not. A little bit more research to be done. But he's writing a so-called diary for BBC News. Why does he need to write a diary? Why can't the BBC actually go around and interview people on the spot as to what's happening in hospitals? Well, they can't do that because they get to the truth. But if you read this BBC article, completely and encourage people to go and read it. There are no actual facts about COVID numbers in the NHS. There's no evidence. It's all emotion and hearsay. Um, we did phone the Bradford Institute and ask who the industry names are that help fund them, but they declined to say. And I'll just end this segment on another positive note. We've done Shelley, um, but um, what she did prompted this, I think, coming up on um, Twitter and we've got a young lady who'd been working as a special constable. She said, I've got to resign because I cannot take what's what's going on in the police at the moment. So we've got another person courageous standing up to be counted, putting proper values uh, above the rhetoric of the police. So this is very, very encouraging. Um, I noticed that Shelley in that uh, discussed knowing one person who had committed suicide as a result yes. of this. Uh, and I mean, the suicide statistics are just simply not available at the moment, except that there is uh, Nadine Dorries yesterday, if anybody wants to go and look at her uh, Twitter feed yesterday, the day before, uh, was was pushing out a, a, a so-called scientific paper, which was claiming that there's no excess suicide compared to the previous year, well, uh, that therefore there's no effect of on people's mental health or drive for suicide as a result of lockdown and COVID. Uh, yeah. The anecdotal evidence says the contrary. This is a, a, a so-called scientific paper that she's pushing around from, I think it was Manchester University. Um, but where are the official statistics on it? They're not available. Just as the official statistics on bed occupancy in hospitals are not available. And if, you know, it's very much like, uh, you know, witnessing election counts in the United States. If there was nothing to hide, Surely there's, you know, they've got nothing to fear about pushing out the statistics. Yep. The statistics show the evidence, uh, but they don't seem to want to do that. And I just want to know why. Well, certainly if we, on, the, on the mental health side, uh, Mike, we know from the many people that are contacting us, professional people involved with mental health, they've all got the same story to tell. And that is that unfortunately suicide rates and mental health rates are going through the roof as a result of lockdown. And as we're going to see in a minute, the government is working hard on inducing more fear and stress amongst our young people. I describe this as an attack by the British government on the mental health um, of young people in particular. Why do they not want to put out the statistics on suicides, Mike, as you say, to cover up the truth? Uh, now, on Monday, we were talking about the Liverpool School that uh, is apparently having the army coming in to uh, uh, give tests to the, to the pupils with or without consent. Um, we want to say very well done to the, the people that have pushed out a little video clip, which we're going to show a little bit of in a second now, uh, from Liverpool with the army on the streets to do exactly that. Uh, and, uh, you know, this is the power of social media and the power of people uh, with smartphones switching on live stream, yeah. which is what they did in this case. Um, so well done to these, uh, this group. And uh, let's just have a quick look at this. Yeah, I can't 
all tests out. Guys, we are live at a school. Giving all tests out to children. Guys, we are live at school in this Liverpool. Calderstone School. Share this everywhere, guys. We are live. Calderstone School in Liverpool, I believe. What are you doing at the school here? What are you doing at the school here today? Please. What are you doing at the school here today? I can't hear you. Can I can I come round so I can talk to you? Can I? I can't hear you. Go come round. Can you turn the engine off so I can hear you? What are you, are you coming to test the kids in school? There's no children died of COVID-19. Why is the army here to test children? It's dreadful what's going on. So a couple of questions there. Why do they need that sort of equipment? on the streets so this is about this is about optics more than anything else this, this is about impact um, the army's on the street you've got to show that it's the army so uh, it's no good having a few blokes in uniform you've got to have um, some big equipment to impress people intimidate people why do they need that monster truck to make people fearful of what's going on right that, that is the answer um i wasn't really clear what the what the, the the army personnel were saying but it sounded like you need to talk to the officer i'm i'm pretty sure that's what he said as the final remark and i can understand that would be what he would say because the squaddy is not going to say something that's going to get him into trouble so he's going to point you need to speak to the officer so here we are for our world audience, I think we can say it. We've now got the British Army on the streets of UK in order to help effectively enforce vaccines. That's where it's coming to on, on our school children as a result of the pandemic for which the British government has not produced any credible evidence whatsoever. So with the lockdown and the army on the streets, this, this is a coup, Mike. It certainly looks that way, but uh, let's let's move on with this. Uh, here is the oh sorry, I, I do apologise. Uh, let me just do that. Uh, here is the uh, famous behavioural insights team. Uh, we apply behavioural insights to inform policy, improve public services, and deliver positive results for people and communities. Is what they claim. Uh, of course, they've had much coverage on uh, on this program and on the UK Column website. Uh, but uh, they now are suggesting that we all need uh, COVID nineteen negative paper wristbands and certificates. So this is the Behavioural Insights team softening us up for immunity passports. Uh, and uh, well, they're doing this because uh, apparently uh, one of their team uh, headed off to Slovakia and they were, they were doing some uh, uh, mass testing in Slovakia. They tested uh, 3.6 million people in Slovakia tested for COVID-19 during a single week. Uh, and this was part of a major testing, major mass testing drive. So they sent uh, Christina Landakova, who is uh, a policy advisor at the Behavioural Insights team, uh, to Slovakia to have a look at how they're doing this and what they're doing. Uh, and they also sent uh, William War, who's a health advisor to the Prime Minister uh, and one of the UK's government's uh, alleged testing specialists, so an expert. Uh, and so the, the report, uh, which is available on the, uh, the Behavioural Insights team website, said that uh, there's the, the uh, strategy in Slovakia had been an enormous success. It had identified over 38,000 new cases in just two days. Well, of course, it didn't identify 38,000 new cases. It identified 38,000 positive results. Uh, those are two very different things. So Slovakia has a population of 5.5 million people. So they tested a large proportion of that. Was that about 60, 70%? Um, but uh, don't worry, 
uh, because according to this report, if we're going to bring the Slovakian model over to the UK, we need to enlist the help of the royal family, uh, the cabinet, parliament, local government uh, as supporters of the project. Uh, and we need to reach out to the community to encourage them to get tested through tr trusted institutions and leaders. So Good. Good. the Behavioural Insights team uh, doing their job here, which is to nudge people in the direction of immunity, uh, wristbands in this case, immunity passports. Uh, well, of course, uh, this is to underpin the likes of this. This is the uh, recent ID 2020 webinar series. It's what they're calling them the summit sessions webinar series. I think this was the second one and it happened on the 16th of October, I think. Uh, and uh, well, what are they saying here? People in the UK uh, who test negative for coronavirus, sorry, I apologize, wrong one. Uh, the international, yes, the international community is mobilizing with unprecedented urgency to develop and uh, deliver safe and effective vaccines to halt the spread of uh, SARS-CoV-2. But in the meantime, once you get your results from that, you've got to be able to tell lots of people all about it. Uh, and ID2020 is going to push forward with this. Uh, who is uh, who was on the speakers panel here? Dr. Seth, Seth Barkley from Gavi, the uh, Vaccine uh, Alliance. Uh, Sky Gilbert, who's uh, from Digital Square at PATH, uh, executive director, not sure what that is. Uh, Dr. Brad Perkins, who's co-founder co and uh, chief medical officer at the Commons Project. Now, if you've been uh, watching the UK column for a little while, certainly over the last uh, few weeks, uh, we highlighted the Commons Project. It is uh, a joint initiative between the World Economic Forum uh, and, uh, well, the Rockefeller Foundation, uh, right. as you would expect. Uh, and it's all about COVID passports and the one that they are using or though they're developing is called Common Pass. Uh, this is it, uh, Common Pass. It's all about global travel. It's all about being able to go to work, go to events, go to see your, your uh, sports and so on. Uh, and this is the, uh, the immunity passport which has been uh, used, trialled in the UK through Heathrow Airport uh, at the moment. So Common Pass is probably the outcome uh, at the end of the day. Um, and uh, that is, uh, as I say, a World Economic Forum uh, Rockefeller Foundation project. But the Behavioural Insights team, very keen to soften us up in preparation for that with armbands or but, wristbands, sorry. Uh, yeah, well, they, they are going for minds. The attack is principally on our minds because if people can be dumbed down, if people can be stressed out, made fearful enough, they will agree to the government policies coming through. So. I, I think if you look for what is the uh, most concerning aspect of what's going on, it's the government's use of applied psychology as a, as a weapon on the public. Yes. And the Behavioural Insights team, of course, were the lead on that. Uh, as people are saying in our chat room, we need to dig these people out of their little holes, bring them under the sunlight so that we can examine them and see exactly what their views and values and policies are really about. But if you try and phone the Behavioural Insights team at the moment, it just rings out. Um, I've emailed them several times. They do not want to communicate with the UK column because we're asking them for the risk assessment they carried out to justify the use of their be applied behavioural psychology. They don't want to answer. Now, I want to highlight this article by Dr Zoe Harkham, PhD. It is a fantastic article. It's entitled Sage conflicts of interest is on her blog. Uh, and this is what she's saying, as, as a, uh, late as March the 11th, 2020, the UK government and medical officers issued uh, practical and minimally disruptive advice to combat the spread of novel coronavirus. And then she goes on to detail uh, a few uh, timeline items here. So on March the 16th, the, the now infamous Neil Ferguson Imperial College paper was published predicting over 500,000 deaths in the UK and 2.2 million in the US if suppression measures were not introduced. Uh, the next one says stricter measures were uh, announced on the day that the paper was published and the first UK lockdown was announced a week later on March the 23rd. US states variously followed suit. Uh, the committee has been advising that has been advising the government throughout this period is sage uh, ferguson was a member until he resigned in may for having broken the lockdown rules uh, this week's note examines the key influencers on sage and their conflicts of interest uh, and so she points out that organizations invested in vaccines make more money 
from vaccines, uh, make money from vaccines. People who uh, acquire natural immunity have less or no need for a vaccine. If people are locked in their homes, they have less chance of acquiring natural immunity. She makes the point that 12 out of 20 key influencers work for, this is on Sage, work for or have received funding from organizations involved in COVID-19 vaccines. Uh, that there are four times more modeler statisticians and experts uh, in behavior manipulation on the committee than there are virologists, there are no immunologists. Uh, and she says it doesn't matter if a drug is good or bad, it matters that those who have a financial interest in that drug are conflicted if they give advice that protects the financial interests in that drug. And it goes on to uh, give quite a bit of detail to back up those statements. Uh, I strongly recommend that people read that and please share it because uh, it is a fantastic uh, piece of work. Excellent. And um, excellent piece of work against this background. Now, I don't know where this photo has come from, but several people had sent it and circulated it as being a fascinating insight in, into the bunker. Of course, the first thing you notice is that there is no social distancing at all. There's no uh, face masks. There's no hand gel or washing gel on the table. Um, what do you think is going on in this picture, Mike? Well, it, well, just on that point, the, the picture is a few months old now, so right. so that would explain that. But uh, it's pretty clear what's going on. Uh, the key players are pretty scared of being shouted at by Chris Woody, and he's red in the face in this mm -hmm. picture, isn't he? Leaning over the table, and Matt Hancock um, is what the scared yes. schoolboy. Yes. So I, I'm just going to I, I make the point, maybe slightly off here, depending on the date of the photo, but there's no masks or social distancing. These people know the pandemic isn't real, um, but the key bit they're doing is unleashing this applied behavioural psychology as an attack on people. And what is it designed to do to ramp up fear, stress and confusion? And the evidence is there. When we go looking for the evidence, we can find it. So thank you very much to the lady that uh, pulled this one out. This is from Spy B, which is essentially the specialist psychology team within the SAGE unit or uh, in parallel with the SAGE unit. And what are they looking at here? Well, they're on to the minds of young people. This paper was commissioned by the Cabinet Office communications colleagues to focus on how messaging and other techniques can be used to promote adherence in young people. We well, gonna... sorry. Go on. Well, I was just going to say, of course, they are Cabinet Office colleagues because uh, some of the people on SPY-B are Behavioural Insights Team people and the Behavioural Insights Team is still part owned by the Cabinet Office. Yes. So this, and we've got the collaboration unit as well, they're talking about, we know that they're employing altogether about 7,000 people, uh, but what are they doing? Attacking the minds of young people. Just let uh, me read a little bit of this one. Background, recent data indicates that complete and majority compliance with COVID-19 preventative behaviours, e.g. E social distancing and stay at home, is substantially lower and declining amongst those aged 18 to 29 years compared to older groups. So they're worried that younger people are beginning to see through the nonsense that the British government is pushing out. And uh, they, they say, well, we've got to do something about this. So this is a 10 page document. Um, we, we will post a, a link so that people can see it for themselves. Uh, but it goes on to increase impact communication strategies, which are aimed at changing individual behaviours, should be complemented by practical interventions in institutions and the surrounding environment. E.g., universities should be required to, sh uh, to shift to remote learning immediately and schools should distribute free face coverings. Communications interventions aimed at aiming at to change individual behaviour will on their own have a limited impact. So they know they're not getting the message through. Now you've got to change the whole system. You've got to tell uh, schools what to do, how to, how to behave. And of course, we're isolating and getting young people to stay at home. And that is one of the key factors increasing the suicide rates. Um, so what is it, what's it going on here? It's again talking about the fact that they are losing um, impact on these people and they've got to do something about it. I'll just put that up on the screen so that people can see it. 
So complete and majority compliance categories reflecting adherence across behaviours as social distance, staying at home is substantially lower and declining amongst those aged 18 to 29 years. And um, what does it say? That they've got to target communications on young people. It should be delivered by trusted non-governmental sources, e.g. charities, celebrities, sports club, commercial brands. So you're going to use all of what I'm going to label the mush of society to push a message to youngsters that they've got to conform to something that the government hasn't proved in the first place. And the bottom bit was the most dangerous. Here it is, number six, which I've, I've replicated at the top of the screen. Young people asked to isolate or stay at home should be provided with good financial or other support, e.g. free mobile phone data. Never mind whether you can eat, Mike, as long as you've got the free mobile phone data, streaming and gaming. But keeping your head in a game all day in lockdown is what creates mental health problems. So these people know what they're doing and they are attacking the minds of our young people. There should be criminal charges brought in my view. I don't know how else I could put it across more strongly, but this is assault, but of course it's assault on the minds of young people and it's being done by a team. If I read the document here, the 10 pages, one of the things it says well through the document is uh, actually there's a paucity of um, information and evidence to support what we're doing in the first place. So this is not only applied psychology, it's, it's experimental applied psychology. They are playing with the minds of young people, even though that's in, uh, causing an increase in the suicide rate. The, the first line there, communications targeting young people uh, should where possible be delivered by trusted non-government sources, e.g. charities, celebrities, sports clubs, commercial brands. Yeah. No. So, so we're, now, we're now having Adidas and, yeah. and, and Nike telling us, and, and I've seen this, I've seen this on, on, uh, on YouTube increasingly, so-called YouTube influencers from the beginning of this pandemic, telling their audience as if there's, as if there's something special, telling their audience that they, you know, they need to follow the advice and, yeah. and you know. So well, parents don't get a mention in there at all. No. They're not gonna target parents to tell their children. But of course, if the parents really believe that there was a pandemic, they would be doing the job for the government, but we're gonna ignore the parents. We're gonna go straight for the children's minds. Yes. Psychopathic, somebody has described this, psychopathic criminal behavior by the British government to drive up the suicide rate amongst young young people. But Nadine Dari says there is no excess suicide. I oh. think I think the numbers ultimately are going to prove it wrong. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see, indeed. So if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options to help us out there. That would be very, very much appreciated. Now, I just wanted to, I just wanted to make a, a, a minor point about some of the emails that we received. As I said, uh, when we looked at uh, uh, this MHRA story that we uh, led the programme off with today, lots and lots of emails from you. And uh, of course, they all linked to the source material, which is fantastic. Uh, and here is on screen at the moment, uh, a URL uh, that was typical from, from those emails. Now, I'm not gonna criticize anybody for this because I do it as well. And in fact, I accidentally did it when I was writing to the MHR, MHRA this morning. But you'll notice that it begins with HTTPS, as most URLs do. It's got a, a, a domain name there, ted.europa.eu, and then it's got some extra information. Um, and that extra information follows a question mark. Uh, but then there is this section here uh, at the end, which uh, comes after an ampersand. Uh, and the key point here is the bit that says FBCLID. This is a Facebook uh, identifier. Now, if we all share these URLs as they are with the Facebook identifier attached, then all the various agencies that are out there, for example, well, Facebook for a start, absolutely understands how far and wide that, UR, that uh, URL has been shared um, and it, without anybody actually using Facebook. This is just if it's shared by email, for example, they're following that and that, that information is given to the likes of the Cabinet Office Rapid Response Unit 
or the uh, Department for, Inter for, for uh, Digital Culture, Media and Sports uh, Counter Disinformation Unit or 77 Brigade. I'm saying that we should stop. We should cut that bit off the end. That, that section in blue in the URL, that, that can all be safely removed if you want to share the link. And you can share the link without the tracking information going on the end. Uh, and I just wanted to sort of bring that to everybody's attention uh, in case you want to, to think about that and maybe not, uh, not give the government and the various uh, social media companies uh, an easy ride in yeah. following how information is being spread and who it's being spread to uh, over the internet. Okay, thank you for that. Well, change of topic and a very serious one. We learnt um, last night, in fact, that Wilfred Wong, the uh, child protection campaigner and a man who's particularly been working extremely hard over many years to protect children from ritualistic abuse, um, has been arrested as part of a group. And according to the mainstream press, <coughs> they kidnapped a child at knife point. Um, eventually, the, the car that they were in was stopped by a number of uh, police cars full of armed police on the M1. Um, and uh, the mirror here reporting with a picture of um, Wilfred Wong. He's the only person that the mirror produces uh, an image for. And if you, sh if you see the full image, um, you see that uh, he's manacled and in chains. Now, I don't quite understand why he should be the only person to star in the mirror report, but I find it, uh, I find it um, slightly sinister that they've chosen this particular image for Wilfred Wong. I mean, that looks very much like sort of US style uh, prisoner transfer. And uh, I wasn't aware that in the UK we used manacles in that way. Well, uh, I've never seen anything quite like it. I mean, maybe it's a doctored um adopted image but for for the people that know wilfred wong you look at that photo and it certainly looks like him although presumably it's been taken from a distance very gr grainy a uh, number of reports coming out i couldn't find anything on the bbc interestingly enough but local papers because the start of the stories uh, up in north wales in anglesey so here's uh, the north wales chronicle anglesey knife point child abduction six people in custody um, so what was the chronicle saying well they were all remanded in custody by district judge Gwyn jones to appear at carnarvon crown court on december the 7th we're going to ask if the if there is a uh, a live hearing and of course there may well not be due to covid problems but if anybody is in that area and feels that they could attend in order to, to see and hear justice being done. We'd be very grateful for any reports. Uh, this was the details of the, um, those who've been remanded, Dr. Anka Hill, um, Jane Going Hill, uh, uh, Robert Frith, um, husband and wife, Edward Stevenson and Janet Stevenson, and Wilfred Wong himself. Now, the reason I've highlighted a couple of those names is that we're pretty sure that Dr. Anka Hill is actually the mother of the child concerned, and I'll come on to that in a second. Um, but Hill and Going Hill indicated they would be pleading guilty. Now, this has come out very, very quickly, and if we start to maybe think about this case a lot deeper than the mainstream uh, media have, um, they've called it a kidnap, but the child was actually with their mother. That would imply that something rather different has gone on here. And of course, um, Wilfred Wong was a person campaigning to protect children in abusive situations. And um, so something clearly going on here. Uh, we ha think we've located one lady. This is the Janet Stevenson, and she appears to be a Christian counsellor working with trauma and disassociated identity disorder, normally coming from people connected to satanic ritual abuse. So you get the impression that uh, maybe this is a team of people that were trying to help a, children in, a child in a particular environment. Uh, but of course, if you um, step into anything happening with the family courts, you're in deep trouble. 
and this is where we can add a bit because um, we understand that actually there is a family court case going on at the moment. So if we take these, these two key points, it appears that none of the media nor the police reports that the child was with their mother. We think that was the case. If it was the case, it places a different angle on the headlines of kidnap, especially at knife point. And then the other thing that we have to say is that if the mother is involved with the family courts in an attempt to protect her child, the UK law prevents reporting on anything to do with family court cases to maintain the secrecy of the courts and the court's business with children. So um, we, we have got to be extremely careful with what we say, but it does seem to us that there's been some attempt perhaps misguidedly, but we'll wait to see what comes out of that to protect a child. But of course, what has the state done? The state has brought in carloads of armed police uh, to arrest all concerned. So this is one of the very pleased uh, police officers. Um, of course, senior police around the country, including Wales, cannot put a stop to the abuse of children, um, but they seem to be remarkably good at uh, stopping anybody who might be trying to help. Uh, so Gareth Evans, the chief superintendent, said this has been a frightening incident for all those involved. Our focus throughout has been to recover the child safe and well, and I'm happy to report that this was achieved. I'd like to thank my colleagues in Northamptonshire for their swift assistance. That was all the armed police that turned up uh, to stop the car. Can I reassure our communities on Anglesey that this was not a stranger attack, the incident is isolated and we're dealing with those we suspect were involved. I think this is another clue, Mike, that this is a known case to them. So this is, no, this is something rather different than a group of nasty people stepping in um, to grab a child. At least that's how it would appear to us. Six adults who were arrested in connection with the incident have all been charged with kidnap and one was charged with possession of a bladed article. Now, we don't know the circumstances of the bladed article, but we do know that the police these days will tend to go for anybody who's carrying a pocket knife or any other sharp implement. And there's been plenty of cases where um, uh, even carrying a small knife uh, for gutting fish, as, as occurred with one man who was a keen fisherman, resulted in a, in a, in a charge by police. So I'll just end by saying that if you don't really know who Wilfred Wong is and you don't understand what he's been trying to do, uh, if you go and search with his name on the UK Column website, you can come up with a lot of the material that we've uh, posted. So I think there's a lot more to come out on this story, Mike. Uh, and when was that first interview, 2015? Um, 2015, I yes. think, yeah. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, well, um, I hope everything goes well for uh, Wilfred Wong. Well, we, we need to see the circumstances of the case, uh, but either he's completely changed character uh, or else this story is nothing to do with the way that the mainstream media is trying to portray it. Mm. Um, okay, well, let's, uh, let's head over to the World Economic Forum then and uh, Green Horizon 2020. Uh, Green Horizon Summit, this is apparently what they're describing as the pivotal role of finance. Uh, and it uh, was taking place uh, between Monday and it ends today. Uh, more than 100 global business and climate leaders taking part, including, well, led by HRH, the Prince of Wales, uh, also the UN Secretary General uh, Guterres and the European Central Bank Chief Christine Lagarde. Uh, it will encourage concrete actions and commitments from financial, financial actors uh, ahead of COP26. Uh, which is taking place in 2021. Uh, the green transition uh, is both urgent, uh, it's a, a, an urgent existential imperative and a significant commercial opportunity. It's time to reset the relationship between finance and the real economy, apparently. Um, and they say that right now, however, there's a persistent finance, uh, financing gap between net zero ambitions and reality. And so the Green Horizon Summit is our moment, our moment to close this gap and mobilize capital by converting momentum into action ahead of COP26. So that's, that's really exciting. Well, guess what? Uh, our, illustrious, uh, our illustrious Chancellor of the Exchequer was there. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to do this to you, but I'm just going to let you hear uh, the first few words that he said in his, in his keynote speech. Thank you for inviting me to speak at today's Green Horizon Summit. 
and I'm sorry we can't be together in person. And thank you to the City of London for hosting such an important event. Earlier this afternoon, I gave a statement to Parliament outlining our vision for the future of financial services in the UK. I believe this moment marks the start of a new chapter, a new role for the sector in supporting the economic recovery from coronavirus, a new relationship with the EU, and a new ambition to make the United Kingdom more open, more technologically advanced, and our focus today, a world leader in green finance. So that's what it's all about. Now, if, if anybody was listening carefully, you may have heard Dominic Cummings cracking the whip in the background there uh, a couple of times. But but we're going to be the world leader in green finance, Brian. Uh, yes, as a man who is tied in with billionaire, yes. Indian billionaires and names, names his um, finance company after links through to Alistair Crowley, yes. or it appears to be so. Indeed. Now, Mark Carney was taking part in this as well. Uh, and he had this to say, we will not get to net zero in a niche. It requires a whole economy transition. And that's absolutely what's going on at the moment. It's a complete transformation of everything. Uh, uh, government, uh, finance, uh, everything, the economy. Uh, now, if we remember, if we go back a year, actually, it was about a year ago that Carney was saying this. Uh, companies that don't adapt, including companies in the financial system, will go out, uh, will go bankrupt without question. There will be industries, sectors and firms that do very well during this process because they'll be part of the solution, but there'll also be ones who lag behind and they will be punished. So this was, uh, his, this was his position a year ago. His position hasn't changed. This man is driven by his wife, who is a radical uh, environmentalist of, of the worst kind. Um, and uh, uh, he was already pushing this uh, before he left the job of governor of the Bank of England. Um, he was speaking at the event yesterday, Yesterday, I think it was, uh, and uh, uh, absolutely clear that that's exactly what is going to happen. We are going to put businesses out of business that are not uh, getting on board with the new Green Deal. Was he pretending to be Canadian or some sort of Englishman when he was speaking, or just an internationalist? He's a blob somewhere out there. He is one of those, yes. yes. A blob. Yeah. Yes, but uh, this is the this is the key thing, isn't it? Because uh, Rishi saying we want to renew the UK's position as the world's preeminent financial centre. What he's actually talking about this is the City of London's position. Uh, the City of London sponsored that event, and it's the City of London that he is uh, he is actually promoting here. Nothing to do with uh, with Britain at, at all. Now, of course, however, having said that, uh, this current government is pushing this policy and has been for some time. Now, it began with uh, an organisation called the Green Finance Initiative, which was launched in September 2017. That particular organisation doesn't seem to exist anymore, at least a website doesn't exist anymore. Uh, but then in 2019, uh, the government published some guidance on green finance, uh, transition to a green financial system and mobilising investment in clean and resilient growth is what they said. Uh, they launched a green finance strategy uh, and that strategy supports the UK's economic policy for strong, sustainable and balanced growth uh, and the delivery of their modern industrial strategy and domestic and international commitments on climate change. Of course, modern industrial strategy is based on the idea you don't have any industry. But anyway, uh, they also launched uh, this organisation, which is a City of London organisation, uh, the uh, Green Finance Institute. Um, and uh, it's chaired by uh, Sir Roger Gifford. Uh, it's a cross-sector collaboration, as they describe it, uh, that the strategy seeks to advance. And to this end, the government has already taken action, they said, uh, to implement its recommendations ahead of the publication of the strategy, uh, such as setting up this organisation. Um, so who's involved in that? It is a City of London Corporation created uh, organisation, Dame Rian Mary Thomas, is the chief executive uh, and uh, is a former executive at uh, Barclays Bank. Uh, it's the main agency between behind this summit that's just taken place. Uh, and uh, so this is where we're going. And right behind it, of course, or it's under the guise of, of coronavirus yeah. and uh, and the, the lockdown is destroying, uh, you know, the businesses that really are form the core of the UK economy in order to fulfill 
uh, this policy agenda. Uh, and Mike, this is this is really what people have got to focus on: is is the COVID is the smokescreen. So what 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 should we be concentrating on? Well, of course, the real dangers, apart from vaccinations, are going to come in with the with the reset and the climate change agenda, which has got massive implications for businesses, economy, and how we live our lives. But the average voter is just not part of the decision-making um, regime on that. No, and in fact, the average voter isn't being told most of what's going on. Yeah. Well, we've got a short video clip. Everything's changing in the financial world, and we were just amused to see a certain figure has uh, popped up in order to sell financial wares. Let's have a look. rest of this video, I've teamed up with one of the top financial publishers in this country. Why am I doing this? Well, I'll tell you why. I spent 20 years myself working in the financial markets, as indeed my father and grandfather before me did. The world has headed towards one in which big global corporates dominate everything. And they're the ones looking after our pensions. They're the ones looking after our money. And we are getting a pretty rotten deal. For the small man and woman, the financial markets are not delivering. So I think just as we as a country have taken back control of our lives and our destiny, I think at an individual level, it's important that we do the same. Well, they are, Mike, impressive. We've just spent 55 minutes uh, warning the public that they don't have control over their own lives. Um, or their own country. Or their matter. own country. Uh, just at the time when we need some proper leadership to bring the criminal cabal in the government of occupation to account. Um, Oppups, <laughs> Nigel Farage, as a financial salesman. Yes. Brilliant. Yeah, we'll leave that one there, I think. Yeah, so uh, we'll just we'll finish with this, Brian. Uh, this is uh, a little bit of an amusing story. Uh, David Scott posted something to Twitter and immediately got his uh, Twitter feed locked. So I was quite interested to know whether that was because of him or because of what he had posted. So I uh, quickly replicated what he did. And, and indeed, uh, my Twitter account was locked for 12 hours, uh, quick as a flash. Now, what was it was being shared? Uh, well, it was this. Uh, Joe Biden's votes violate Benford's law of mathematics. So this is this is an analysis of uh, a bunch of graphs on a website called G News. Now, I don't know anything about the G News website, uh, but this uh, particular article uh, was was showing a mathematical analysis of the uh, of the vote, the voting trends and, and suggesting that Biden's uh, voting trends didn't fit uh, with Benford's law. Now, uh, people can read that and, and take a view on it. I think, uh, Brian, the main reason, uh, as you pointed out to me, uh, that, that this website is triggering uh, Twitter's algorithm is because it seems to have uh, quite a bit of material on it related to the uh, Hunter Biden laptop and the emails and perhaps some and of the, the video videos, material yeah. uh, that's on there. Now, uh, I didn't look at any of the video material because it, didn't, because it, it, it absolutely had a disclaimer saying it, that, it, that it involved minors. Uh, so I didn't want to watch that. So I don't know whether any of the video, video material is uh, is correct. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, I think that's probably why Twitter had decided uh, that that particular website had to be um, censored in that censored, way. Yeah. Yes. Um, but anyway, it was just a little bit of fun. Okay. Now, uh, just let's finish with uh, with this. Uh, this pretty cynical use of the cenotaph. Uh, to push the climate change uh, uh, propaganda here. Uh, and, uh, well, Burnside, uh, not Tosh uh, on Twitter, getting pretty upset about it, I think justifiably. Yeah. Um, don't know what you think about that. Well, I mean, this, this is where we've reduced tradition and morality in, in the country to a, to a base level. Everything is, is collapsing and now we're at the heart of what we should regard as history and constitutional issues. The country's being destroyed. And so the moment you can get people squabbling over this sort of stuff, um, the likes of Boris and his co-collaborators are winning. So we've got to recognise it for what it is. But it's very sad that memory of people who fought and died for the country is being trashed under this created um, social agenda. I don't think I'm putting it more strongly than that. Um are you going to introduce? 
Well, we, we're going to end by, uh, this is a video from Scotland. We thought it appropriate on Remembrance Day to end with some appropriate uh, music. And David Scott kindly provided us with this short video of a piper. So we'll end on that. And perhaps people will uh, listen to the music and reflect on the fact that a great many people have died to protect their family and the wider public in UK. And I'm sure those people would be horrified if they could see what was happening to the country today. So uh, let's listen to the very poignant music and reflect on those that have died for us.